0: Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. This is episode CXCVIII, Octavia. Octavia was, in many ways, the very model of a modern Roman matron. As the older sister to Octavian, later Augustus, and a wife of the powerful figure Antony, she was respected and admired by her contemporaries for her loyalty, nobility, and humanity, as well as for maintaining traditional Roman feminine virtues. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Hello. Hello. Also, before we get started in today's podcast, I'd like to welcome uh, Rhiannon's Transforming the Past class.
1: Hey. Yeah, this is great. So this third year class at La Trobe University is with us today to watch the behind the scenes of how the podcast is done Mm. and ask questions, which uh, may appear in the podcast. So think about carefully if you want to ask, but also to look at some of the technical issues at at how we, we do the podcast. So welcome class.
0: All right. So shall we get started? Nice and easy one for you. Who is Octavia? Can you ground us for today's episode?
1: Octavia, she is... Now, that was bad. I've learned over the years that I'm supposed to answer that as if there's no question. No, but that's
0: okay. I will be leaving the question in, and because it's a kind of live show, I'll probably leave all of this in as well. Oh, God. Yeah.
1: Uh, (laughs) So we should call her Octavia the Younger, Octavia Minor, Mm. right? Minor meaning the Younger. She is, as we've said, the sister of Octavian, who becomes Augustus, and that puts her in a really prominent position. She's already from a very aristocratic family, so her mother is a niece of Julius Caesar, her mother Artia. And so she comes from the, the very top elite of Roman society. She is three or maybe six years older than Octavian. We don't know exactly what her date of birth is. Um, so she's his older sister. They also have a half-sister who's also called Octavia. That's why she's the younger.
0: You've already foreshadowed that her, her parents are quite important people and the place that the family holds in Roman imperial society is very important at the time. So who are they?
1: Well, the importance comes from her mother's side of the family, yeah. being related to Julius Caesar. Her father is prominent, but not even from the senatorial level of society. He's an equestrian. So that equestrian rank puts them at the second level from the father's side. And this was sometimes used against her and Octavian that they could be said to have humble, relatively humble beginnings. It's still extraordinarily wealthy if you're an equestrian. But it doesn't really matter because that link with Julius Caesar means that they have an enormous amount of authority. They're close to power, uh, especially through this period in the middle of the first century BCE. And this marriage to Artia means that her father Gaius Octavius it's a great alliance for him, and it means his political career is almost certainly made.
0: Mm, so he marries up, so it's a, a good workout for him as well. But he dies when Octavia is relatively young?
1: Yeah, so if she was born in 66 BCE, which is what most sources will tell you, some will say as early as 70, then her father dies in 59 BCE, so she's, she may be as young as 7. And all of his estates are left to Octavia's brother, Octavian. I'm going to try and really enunciate that because Mm. the difference between Octavia and Octavian isn't big. So he's just four. And her mother then remarries to a man called Lucius Marcius Philippus. As we'll see, everything that happens is an alliance of some sort. And this is uh, a friend of Pompey, who at that time is Julius Caesar's ally. So this is a a marriage. This is Octavia's mother, Artia, is marrying to kind of confirm the alliance of Pompey and Caesar, because it's Pompey's mate and she's related to Caesar.
0: Mm -hmm. So that's very much a, a marriage that's done to cement alliances. And unfortunately, I guess for Octavia, a young aristocratic woman is viewed in terms of marriage alliances. So when she's growing up, is is this the case for her? Is she useful as somebody to marry?
1: Yeah, this is true of the Roman Republic. So the Roman Republic, as we've said before, is very much an oligarchy. So it's a few families in power and they will tend to marry their daughters because the father has complete control. Now, of course, her father is dead, but we um, we imagine that her mother and stepfather are now in this position and Julius Caesar is obviously exerting a lot of power here, too that the daughter is a card that you can play to make sure that your family is joined to other powerful families. And also, as we've seen before, it's easy to move them around like chess pieces because marriage is not forever in the Roman world. Divorce is common. But yes, Octavia is now in this position where Julius Caesar and the Julian family will maneuver her into marriages that work for them. And it starts quite young because Roman women are married off quite young.
0: Yeah, this gets icky, off you go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we don't know exactly when, just as we don't know for certain when she was born, but sometime before 54 BCE is what's normally said. So at the very oldest, she's 16 or 15 probably, but she might be as young as 12. Her stepfather organizes a marriage with Gaius Claudius Marcellus, so Gaius Claudius Marcellus, This is very young, you know, even if she's 15. Mm. In our terms, it's young. And it's easy to maneuver her around. Now, as it happens, she remains married to Marcellus until he dies. But there is talk of marrying her off to Pompey instead.
0: Pompey would have been pushing 60 at the time.
1: But he will marry somebody very young later on. Yeah, um, such as
0: somebody else very young. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. his wife dies, his wife Julia, who is Julius Caesar's daughter. So this is a problem for Julius Caesar and Pompey because that's what kept their alliance together. Or it certainly helped. So Julius Caesar proposes that Octavia be divorced from her husband. It seems quite heartless, doesn't it? And married off to Pompey. We're told about this in Suetonius. So Suetonius's life of Julius Caesar, in chapter 27, he says, To retain his relationship and friendship with Pompey, Caesar offered him his sister's granddaughter Octavia in marriage, although she was already the wife of Gaius Marcellus, and asked for the hand of Pompey's daughter, who was promised to Faustus Sulla.
0: It's like a horse trade.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <It's> really. <laughs> so he's saying, oh, look, I've got this great niece. Yeah. Not as in great, wonderful, but she's... Generational. Yeah. The daughter of my niece. Uh, She's married, but that's okay. We can get rid of that marriage. We'll get her to divorce Marcellus. Mm. And she can marry you, Pompey, instead. And also, I need to get married. So how about your daughter marries me, even though she's already engaged to Faustus Sulla? Now, neither of these things happened. And Suetonius doesn't tell us why. Yeah. May have been Octavia refused. She was apparently happily married to Marcellus.
0: The thing is, you know, despite the fact that it didn't happen, if it did happen, completely normal, completely yeah. acceptable, you know, this is how we do things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, these women get handed around, and this is what happens to Octavia.
0: All right, so she's still married to uh, Marcellus. So how does Octavia's position evolve then during all the the factional bickering, which is completely underplaying uh, what the Civil War is, (laughs) factional bickering?
1: (laughs) Her husband's in a really significant position just before the Civil War starts in 49, because in the year 50 BCE, the year before, he is consul. And it really is a crucial year because this is where everything starts to fall apart and Julius Caesar refuses to give up his army and this is what is going to lead to civil war. And you might think he's married to the great niece of Julius Caesar, that he will therefore back Caesar in these terrible events that are going to lead to civil war. But no, he's on the side of the Republicans. He's on Pompey's side. But he didn't actually go to war for Pompey. He just sides with him ideologically, I guess. This means that after Caesar wins the Battle of Pharsalus, which is a really crucial battle against Pompey, that he might be in trouble. But Caesar is very lenient with him, as he is with many of the Republican warriors.
0: But the fact that he's married to Octavia probably didn't hurt the situation at that point.
1: Actually, a good deal for Marcellus because it probably saved his life or at least meant that he could kind of continue as an aristocrat.
0: Mm. And around this time as well, they're they're having children. So Octavia has three children to Marcellus.
1: Yes, there are a lot of children here. All of these children are named after their father. They take their names from their father. So there are two girls called Claudia Marcella, and they're going to be the older and the younger, Maior and Minor. And there's a son, Marcus Claudius Marcellus.
0: Which is his father's name. Exactly the same name (laughs) as his father.
1: (laughs) We should mention here actually as well that we're going to see a lot of this, that Octavia's reputation is shaped by what happens subsequently. And a bit of a spoiler, Octavian's going to win on all of this. Right? He's going to be the ultimate winner. He will be the Emperor Augustus. And even as early as this, History is being written in a way that is kind to her because she's the emperor's sister, ultimately. So this is a period where there are proscriptions, where people are executed and their land's taken away. And she is credited with interceding for people who are going to have their land taken away by trying to beg for mercy for them. Whereas another woman we've looked at recently, Fulvia... She is credited with desperately trying to get this land, and she's one of these women who's on the losing side in the propaganda war or the rewriting of history war. So Octavia's already getting a good sheen during this period, at least in slightly later history. Mm-hmm. So there's revisionism going on. That's what I'm trying to
0: say. So Octavia's husband, Marcellus, dies uh, in May 40 BCA. No suspicious circumstances or anything like that. I'm going to assume it was just old age. Octavian, at this point, is now ostensibly in charge of the family. He's the senior male in the family and can go, oh, look, my sister is single and ready to go. I can use her as a useful alliance, much like my great uncle Julius did before me.
1: So, yeah, I find Octavian increasingly terrifying. He's 23 at this point, and he's exerting all of this power in the family and over the Roman world. And he seems to have no limit to his ambition and arrogance, I Mm. would say. Yes, he wants his sister to be useful. And so, who is free and single and needs to be...
0: Free and single and ready to mingle. Mm.
1: Well, none other than Mark Antony.
0: He's doing a lot of mingling at the time, I think.
1: This is going to be his fourth marriage. But Antony doesn't have to be divorced in order for this marriage to take place because his wife, Fulvia, had conveniently died the same year. Mm. I think probably by natural causes as well.
0: So we say Octavia is uh, is available to be married, but she's actually still in the mourning period from the death of her husband, Marcellus, and pregnant with their last child. Yes. So, so
1: actually, it, when we said earlier that she had three children, she didn't at that she's point. She's
0: still working on the last one. This will be, what, Claudia Marcella Minor? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she's pregnant. So she needs to get special permission to kind of jump the mourning period. And,
1: she does. And yeah. it's special permission from the Senate. Divorce is fine, but getting married again when you're recently bereaved, but- not okay. And Mark Antony did not have to get permission. All right. So this is another one of those double standards. The permission has to be granted for women. And it's because of all of this concern about the legitimacy of the child. Mm. And even if she weren't pregnant, well, what if she was and we didn't know yet? Something like that.
0: Yeah, so you have a nine-month mourning period.
1: Ten months, because the Romans do inclusive counting, yes, yeah. And
0: yeah. A ten-month mourning period, but that's officially to you know make sure any birth that happens belongs to the previous husband.
1: And this is an issue with this family, isn't it? Because this will happen when Octavian marries Livia. But they marry before that, and she is still pregnant with her second son. Her husband's not dead. She's been divorced from him, so she can marry Octavian. Mm. And there's rumors forever that that child is Octavian's.
0: Okay, so second marriage is to Antony. Uh, She's got uh, two slash three children. You've now got a massive quote here from Plutarch. Is this just you sledging Plutarch? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So Plutarch... Well, none of our sources is particularly close to this time period. Plutarch is a good hundred years later writing in Greek, writing biographies. And this is from the life of Antony. Mm -hmm. So I think we've mentioned before that we don't get biographies of women. But the life of Antony touches on a lot of women (laughs) because he's married so often. Uh, Much as
0: Antony himself does.
1: Yeah. So a lot of what we know about Cleopatra is from Plutarch's life of Antony. And a lot of what we know about Octavia is from Plutarch's life of Antony. This is what Plutarch has to say, and watch out for the mistake. So, Octavia was a sister of Caesar, that is, Octavian Augustus, older than he, though not by the same mother. For she was the child of Ancaria, but he, by a later marriage of Artia. Caesar was exceedingly fond of his sister, who was, as the saying is, a wonder of a woman. Her husband, Gaius Marcellus, had died a short time before, and she was a widow. Antony too, now that Fulvia was gone, was held to be a widower although he did not deny his relations with Cleopatra. It's already on. He would not admit, however, that she was his wife, and in this matter his reason was still battling with his love for the Egyptian. Everybody tried to bring about this marriage, for they hoped that Octavia, who besides her great beauty, had intelligence and dignity when united to Antony and beloved by him, as such a woman naturally must be, <laughs> would restore harmony and be their complete salvation. So what that means is that if this marriage takes place, then that potentially means that Octavian and Antony won't end up at war with each other. That's what that is glossing over.
0: There's also the inference that Octavia is going to kind of bring him under control. She's bring going him to reform a bit. him. Yeah. All he
1: needs is the love of a good woman.
0: Make an honest man out of him.
1: Yeah. Whereas Fulvia and his previous wife had been depicted as a bad woman and Cleopatra, as you can tell there, even though Plutarch is kinder to her than a lot of ancient writers... He's still calling her the Egyptian. You know, he has to battle his love against her like she's this siren who's drawing him the wrong way, whereas Octavia might direct him the right way, is the hope.
0: Just a sidebar, though, calling her Egyptian might be an insult, considering she'd probably consider herself Greek.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Accordingly, when both men were agreed, they went up to Rome and celebrated Octavia's marriage, although the law did not permit a woman to marry before her husband had been dead 10 months. In this case, however, the Senate passed a decree remitting the restriction in time. That's where we get a lot of that information from Plutarch's Life of Antony, Chapter 31. Okay. So the mistake? What was the mistake?
0: Oh, you're asking me. Uh, She does this to me. She quizzes me during the recording of podcasts and I edit all of it out so I don't (laughs) sound stupid. Um, Or uh, did
1: anyone else spot it indeed?
0: I think the mistake was that he says, Octavia, older sister, not of the same mother. Yeah,
1: exactly. All Uh, right, She's not the child of Ancaria. That's Octavia the Elder. mm. It's... I don't know whether you're going to let Plutarch off the hook because they've got the same name. I think it's shoddy research. <laughs> <laughs> we know that he's wrong because of all of the other sources that tell us that she was Artya's child, his, his full sister, and there was another sister who was the half-sister.
0: All right. So what can you tell me then about the happy marriage of Antony and Octavia?
1: Well, people are cynical about this, and I think because of the outcome, it's going to fall apart, folks. Cleopatra will win but you could read this as a purely political marriage but it does seem as if certainly in terms of ancient roman marriage that it is relatively happy at first Mm. so one of the ways that the romans judge the success of a marriage which we might not necessarily is are there children well there are children there are children quite quickly in fact so quickly that one scholar of plutarch chris Pelling thinks that the child that Octavia was pregnant with when she married Antony is not actually the younger Claudia Marcella that she must have miscarried because she gets pregnant very quickly by Antony. All right, so maybe she does already have three children before she marries Antony.
0: I see. Okay.
1: (laughs) I just keep changing my mind on that. So there will be children as a result of this marriage Antony celebrates the marriage in uh, a very official way, although I wouldn't mind having my romance celebrated in this way, he puts out coins with both of them on it. I realize it's a political statement. It bolsters him politically to be attached to the Octavian family. Gold, silver and bronze coins are issued all over Eastern cities. So this is where Antony has power in the East. Mm. Octavian really has the West sewn up in Italy. You can tell that this is a political move, though. I mean, coin it always is, because there are also coins that are not just Antony and Octavia. They also have Octavian on them. You should look this up because they're really funny. It's like the third wheel in this marriage or something.
0: (laughs) And I'm sure it was like that in reality as well. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah.
1: This may mean that Octavia is the first Roman woman ever on a coin. Although we have in this podcast have already said that about another woman, mm. the previous woman married to Antony, Fulvia may be the first woman on a Roman coin, but it's debated whether that's some kind of personification or it actually is Fulvia.
0: It's also debated about you know who's actually putting the coin out. In the case of the Fulvia coins, it was likely the local yeah. coin manufacturers who were deciding. You know, let's celebrate. Our great Antony here and put his wife on the coin as well, whereas these ones probably came directly from Antony, you Uh know, put my wife on the coin kind of thing.
1: And celebrate the developing pact between Mm. Octavian, the heir of Julius Caesar, and Antony. Because Antony is based in the east, she travels with him to his huge villa in Athens And she's got a lot of kids to look after now because not only does she have her own three children by Marcellus, but also Antony's two sons, Antillus and Eulus, And then there are two daughters that she and Antony have together who are both called Antonia. Antonia the Elder and Antonia the Younger. Hold on to Antonia the Younger because she'll be important. Antony has gone off to fight the Parthians way out east by the time the second daughter is born. And I do think, from the meager evidence we have, she spends two winters. So, Antony's only going to fight in the summer, as is the Roman way. And the winters of 39 to 38, 38 to 37, she winters in Athens with him, or rather, he comes back to Athens. And much as I am sometimes cynical about our sources, They all describe this as a very happy period for Octavia. So she and Antony during those years, 39 to 37, are happy. In addition, maybe to make this even happier, she is recognized as a goddess in Athens, which is also great. She's kind of assimilated to the goddess Athena Polyas, Athena of the city in the Greek East. She's never recognized as a goddess in Rome, of course, because you don't do that while people are alive. She is really politically active as well during this period. So as well as possibly being happy families for these years, she is really instrumental in bringing about the official pact between Octavian and Mark Antony. It's called the Pact of Tarentum because it was negotiated in southern Italy in Tarentum. It extends their previous pact by five years. Their pact is called the Triumvirate, the group of three men. There's a third man there, Lepidus, who we don't talk about that much, but he is in there. And she managed to get this extended by apparently sweet-talking Octavian's friends to bring Octavian round to it. So even though she's his sister, she apparently needs to negotiate or talk to uh, his friends Agrippa and Mycenas, who are kind of Octavian's two best buddies. And she also negotiates more ships for Octavian. So this is quite practical. It's not just on a level of being a mediator. He needs ships to go off and fight Sextus Pompey, the son of Pompey. And she also sort of looks towards a future pact, getting Octavian's baby daughter, she literally is just a baby at this point, betrothed to Mark Antony's son, Antillus. This marriage is not going to happen, not because they decide not to have it, but because Antillus is going to get killed off before it can happen. So she's doing a lot. She's pretty active, mm-hmm. looking after a lot of children. And it's not just looking after She's responsible for their education. That's part of the Roman mother's role. So she's very significant in their lives. And she is really maneuvering in Roman politics.
0: So we're going to get back to this later about how all of this makes her the very model of a modern Roman matron. But you're looking after children, you're advocating on behalf of your husband's interests as well as your family's interests, I guess, as well. Cementing alliances mm. just by the fact of who you're marrying.
1: Yeah, but it's pretty clear with Octavia that it's more than just the fact of being married cements that alliance. She seems quite active in mm. it. In as much as a Roman woman can't have official power. But, you know, when people talk about the power behind the throne, she's exerting that, they usually mean that in a negative way. Yes. And in all of this, I mean, I'm going to keep saying this just because I think it's so true. She is advocating for her husband, Mark Antony. She's doing very similar things to what his previous wife Fulvia did, but she absolutely gets a gloss put on what she does because she's Octavian's sister and he's the winner in the war, whereas Fulvia was seen as a manipulator, scheming behind the scenes. Octavia never gets painted like that, so their reputations are very different for doing very similar things.
0: No, well if I go back through that previous Plutarch quote, uh, she is a great beauty, had intelligence and dignity, Uh, and later on we've got uh, Octavia being toasted as a marvel of womankind.
1: Yeah, loads of superlatives for Octavia, he loves her.
0: Yeah. Uh, So when Antony begins, or he's already begun, uh, his infamous relationship with Cleopatra, it changes Octavia's position and her standing. And it's much more unclear who she should be acting for in the interest of. Because, you know, previously, as you've just said, she acted for Antony's interests and represented him, advocated for him, as would be expected. But when Antony seems to be having a falling out with Octavian, what position does that put her in?
1: she seems to continue to regard herself as anthony's wife and to advocate for him this is really happening in the mid 30s so the last date i mentioned was 37 so this is when the pact of tarentum occurs and then as we get further through the 30s it's all a bit of a grey area but you know ultimately by 32, Antony is going to have be solidly with Cleopatra. So there's a five-year period where he's moving towards Cleopatra. In 32, he will divorce Octavia. And I think that five-year period is sometimes seen in the light of what we know will happen. He'll break up with Octavia, he'll divorce her, and he'll marry Cleopatra. But during this time, Octavia continues as his dutiful wife and to act publicly for him, to supply him with troops for the Parthian War in 35 BC. That's what she's doing, which is, you know, you might not imagine a woman being involved in military affairs in this way. She gets as far as Athens, and a lot is made of this in our sources. In Athens, she receives a letter from him saying, go back. I don't need you. So kind of turning her away. I question whether this is an outright rejection. It would be strange of Antony to let her come further east into the war. That happens sometimes with married women, but very rarely and usually later.
0: Oh, I read that as leave Athens.
1: Mm, I think all we hear is that she's told to go back, so not go further. Mm. Yeah, she does return to Rome though, you're right.
0: That's how I read that. I I don't want you in my house at all.
1: (laughs) I don't think it's that explicit. (laughs) It's a time, clearly, where she is acting as she has been, but he is starting to break away from her. Mm. People read it differently, though. It's traditionally read as Antony rejecting her. Some say, well, he's telling her to go back where it's safe.
0: But there is an actual rejection coming on the horizon. There is,
1: very much so, and, and I've already really foreshadowed it.
0: But this would be a personal insult for Octavia, a very much an insult for Octavian and the pact, very useful to him in some ways to say that we, Rome, are now against Antony. He's turned his back on us for this Egyptian filly.
1: Yeah, that will be very useful to him in his propaganda (laughs) war, filly. Later on, that he's chosen the East and he's chosen a foreign queen. Octavia does go back and she goes to Rome, but she doesn't go back to her natal family. And there is some evidence that Octavian wants her to go back to her family home. She goes back to Antony's home in Rome, and that's really important, which house she's in. And she continues to look after his children and look after his home until 32 when he divorces her and evicts her from his house. So that is final. She's no longer Antony's wife. Mm. He then marries Cleopatra. He has already recognized his children with Cleopatra he's really dilly-dallied during that period. He's not technically married to Cleopatra. He's kind of got a foot in both camps, which way he could go. And that's the decisive moment. And, you know, within a year, there will be full-out war with Octavian. He's going to be dead in two years.
0: So besides having his older sister and eight children turn up on his doorstep, how does this affect Octavian and how does he use it? You make it sound like advantage. she turns up desperate. <laughs> I think when you're followed by eight children, anything you do is desperate.
1: <laughs> Those children are pretty much all going to be useful to him in some way, yeah. even if he's getting rid of some of them. Everything we're told about Octavian is that he shows her a great deal of honor. That Six he,
0: children, sorry. Well, anyway, keep going.
1: He admires her. If you were cynical, and I am, he uses her to his advantage in his propaganda war with Mark Antony. So very broadly speaking, everything Octavian does shows him as the champion of Italy and of good upstanding virtue, whereas Mark Antony is off on the Nile having luxury banquets with Cleopatra amongst all of these foreign gods and these foreign ways. This is how Octavian depicts it. And into that, he puts Octavia as this ideal Roman matron, right? Antony has rejected the kind of flower of Roman womanhood for this wrong uh, bad woman out east, this temptress. Uh, So that plays very well for Octavian. I'm sounding cynical about it. I mean, Octavia's actions do actually support the fact that she fitted into the model of Roman womanhood. She's a mother. She continues to look after children who aren't even her own. She didn't have to do that. She takes them in. She continues to be a faithful wife even after she's being rejected by Antony. We might see aspects of this as being a doormat, but for the Romans, that was the correct behavior for a Roman woman. And he gives Octavia, this is Octavian, gives her her and also his wife, Livia, several privileges in the mid-30s in 35 BCE. And the chief one is called sacrosanctitas, which means no one can insult them. All right. It's illegal to verbally insult them. Which is a real marker of a dictatorship, really, isn't it? If you can't say anything against people.
0: Saying there's no freedom of speech. Yeah, basically.
1: Mm. Yeah, wow. Um, We can see that in other ways during the Augustan period too.
0: Yeah, now we just block her on Twitter.
1: (laughs) I mean, there are still places in the world where it's illegal to say certain things about certain people. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, definitely. And we would regard them as as very regressive. Mm. So this is true of ancient Rome too. They are immune from guardianship. They don't have this thing called tutela, which means for a Roman woman, she's technically always under the power of a man unless she is liberated from it like this. So even though Roman women who could own property, uh, including slaves, and often did business with it, technically there was always a Roman man who had to sign off on it and say it was okay. And quite often it seems to have been barely observed But technically, it could happen, so that's a restriction on women. Livia and Octavia are now free of that. The only other women who have it automatically are the Vestal Virgins. They have a very special place in Roman society. They're able to manage their own finances, and this is important. This is a big freedom for Octavia, and as we'll see, she seems to have made use of that. It makes her independent of both Antony, because this is before their divorce, and Octavian too. So he's now the most important man in her family and has been for a while, but Octavian has set her free from that.
0: So when Antony and Cleopatra die rather dramatically in 30 BCE, that leaves Octavia uh, single and ready to mingle, as we've previously said. But also she's got eight children at that point to look after, if my count's correct. Uh, So she's got the remaining son of Antony and Fulvia. One of them was killed by Octavian in Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean,
1: how awkward is that? She's been bringing up this kid.
0: Mm, yeah, I know. Anyway, awkward's a m- awkward, <laughs> a muted word for that. <laughs> That's just yeah. Very she's much been acting it. as
1: this child's mother, and he gets rid of him because he's too much of a threat.
0: Yeah, yeah. So th- there's one remaining son whose name is
1: uh, Ulysses. Ulysses.
0: There we yes, go. Ulysses. Uh, she's got uh, her three children from Marcellus, mm-hmm. and uh, who comes knocking on the door?
1: Antony has had three children with Cleopatra. And Octavia brings them up, Mm. which is more understanding than I would be.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that was probably Octavian's idea, though, isn't it? That those children are brought back to Rome, put in a triumph, of course, and then given to Octavia to raise.
1: Well... Yes. I mean, it's Octavian's say whether they get back to Rome. Mm. And there were probably questions about whether he'd get rid of them because he gets rid of the other child of Cleopatra by Julius Caesar. Caesarian is not someone he wants around. But these three children are okay. They're not a threat to him. I think Octavia still must have made some of that decision to take them in. Yeah. They don't have to be brought up by her. She seems to have always decided that her position as mother and surrogate mother is one that she will take on Mm. and it is part of this ideal Roman matron position that she occupies.
0: Yeah and that's very much I gather at this point becomes part of her identity. She is a Roman matron. She's never remarried. I'm sure that conversation may have come up at some point.
1: Well given how much Roman women get used in Mm. that way I mean, she has produced quite a few children, of course, so she's sort of done her duty there. And in a way, Octavian is now so...
0: So powerful, he doesn't s- need the alliances. Yeah, yeah. it's
1: less necessary, yeah, that's okay. for sure.
0: So what role does she take on in the Augustan age then, going forward?
1: She becomes this emblem of Roman womanhood. So as an extension of what I've already been saying, you see statues of her around Rome which might not be that surprising, but it actually is surprising to see statues of women around Rome. So Livia and Octavia start to appear, Augustus's wife and his sister, and we're kind of moving into the period where he's called Augustus now, so I'm going to call him that from 27 BCE. He has that honorific title. It's not common to have statues of women, any kind of depiction of women put publicly on display until this period but now you're gonna see Livia and Octavia in public places. This is clearly part of a dynastic plan that Augustus is laying the foundations for, you know, his heirs will be the future rulers. And that means you celebrate the mothers of those future rulers. And as you'll see, this makes sense because one of Octavia's sons is in line for succession for a while. Mm. So one of the big public statements of Octavia's publicness is a portico that bears her name. A portico is a big grand colonnade, in this case, surrounding two temples, the portico of Octavia, which is begun around 27 BCE, which is as soon as Augustus can do anything, as soon as the family can do anything, because he's just come back from war, or not that long back from war. Well, not long before that, he started building his mausoleum. He gets into the, I need a tomb quite young, and that'll be an important dynastic building. And this is another one. This one is in the Campus Martius, which traditionally is where the army meets. So it's a bit of a weird space for a woman to take over in a way. But I think that's important that it's sort of getting made more domestic, more feminized rather than a military space. And it's a rebuilding of a previous portico, which had been put up by a military hero in the mid-republic the portico of Metellus, he was a second century general. So this republican zone of military display is now becoming not just a place for army exercises and the temples that get built from the spoils of war, but it represents the benefactions of the imperial family and Octavia's part of that. Calling it a feminized space is probably a bit extreme, but the fact that it's got a woman's name attached to it, you can't kind of overstate how important that is. It really hasn't happened before. It's a very beautiful space. You can still see the front of the portico there if you go to that area, just the kind of arch. It doesn't look like very much, but it must have been much bigger and grander and a lot of it's been built over now. It had these two temples, the Temple of Juno and Jupiter, pre-existing temples, which were probably restored as well, which displayed beautiful works of art. One of the works of art is a very famous statue of Aphrodite by the artist Phidias. Who was like the most famous greek artist from the fifth century and the fact is aphrodite i think is important because she is for the romans venus and venus is the goddess who's the founder of the julian family so it's kind of all linking up for octavia with this symbolism
0: Mm.
1: another famous statue there was a bronze statue of the roman woman cornelia who is kind of the exception to that rule about no public statues of women she was a woman from the mid-late 2nd century BC who was known as the mother of the Gracchi and she was the previous ideal Roman woman. She had 12 children. She only got married once and she never got married again even though she had really good offers. Octavia is kind of linking with these various aspects of femininity here.
0: I can see also how you know Octavia would be the inheritor of that yeah. sort of legacy, that, that role in Rome.
1: The portico also contains two libraries, so a Greek and Latin library, which are dedicated to her son Marcellus after he dies. Also nearby, Augustus was already building a theater, but he calls that the theater of Marcellus as well. This whole complex is about Octavia's family, really. Mm. Some ancient authors said it was actually built by Augustus, nothing really to do with her, but even if you believe that, it's clearly useful to attach her name to it Mm. at the very, very least.
0: Let's talk about Marcellus because we've brought him up already. Now, that's one of the sons of Octavia and Marcellus Mm -hmm. Sr.
1: Indeed, the son.
0: Yes, the son. And at one point, uh, Augustus considered him his heir, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Big deal about that, but it didn't come about because Marcellus died of natural causes. And this hit Octavia rather hard, which you would expect, really.
1: Yeah, so... Marcellus is definitely the heir, and we know that because Octavian has married him to his one and only child, Julia, his only natural child. He's definitely preparing him for succession. He dies after an illness in 23 BCE, and he's just 19 years old, so it's very sad. He's the first person to go into that mausoleum of Augustus. And yeah, there's no doubt that this would have been very difficult for Octavia and We have a little anecdote about just how she is still affected by this in the subsequent years. The story comes from a biography of Virgil, the poet Virgil, from the 4th century CE, which means, I don't know how reliable it is, it's quite late. It's by Donatus. And in chapter 32, Donatus says, much later, when he had, he is Virgil, he had refined his subject matter, and he's writing the Aeneid at this point, his most famous work. He finally recited three whole books for Augustus, the second, fourth, and sixth.
0: So so no concern for narrative there.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, they're the most famous books in some ways. The second is The Fall of Troy. The fourth is The Tragedy of Dido. And the sixth, well, Donatus tells us this one because it is out of his well-known affection for Octavia, who, being present at the recitation, is said to have fainted at the lines about her son you shall be Marcellus. That's Aeneid 6, um, Mm. line 884. In book six of the Aeneid, some of the students here will have read the Aeneid and know this, there's a parade of future Roman heroes in the underworld. Aeneas goes to the underworld and he sees all these souls who are going to be reborn as Roman heroes. And Aeneas' dad points to one of them, because his dad's dead in the underworld, and says, you shall be Marcellus. So that's the future potential glory of the Roman Empire who so cruelly was taken away. This incident where Octavia faints dramatically has often been painted. The French seem to have loved painting this. So there's a painting by Angre and there's a painting by Talesson. There's a German one I like by Angelica Kaufmann. It's always with Octavia fainting away. And one of her maids is kind of giving Virgil the evil eye. I'm saying, what have you done mm. uh, idea? It's clear a dramatic incident that gets kind of revived over the years.
0: But having said that, she seemed to be quite fond of the verse. We've got here what she orders, 10,000 sesterces to be granted to Virgil for each of the verses.
1: Yeah, which is a lot of money. Yeah, it is. Does it mean for each line of the poem from the second, fourth and sixth books? Because that's a lot of lines. Depends
0: Um, how long she was unconscious for.
1: (laughs) Anyway, she's got a lot of money. She gives him a big reward for writing about Marcellus.
0: The other child, which we should mention at the moment as well, is Claudia Marcella, major or minor?
1: Major. The bigger one, the elder one.
0: Okay, so she's married to Agrippa?
1: She is. Yeah, so remember Agrippa was Octavian's right-hand man. But she gets moved around. She's divorced from him so that Julia can marry Agrippa, Augustus' daughter. So Agrippa can be made more important that he can be moved in as kind of central to the family.
0: So given her position in the imperial family, uh, her death must have been quite the public event. I don't want to say that Augustus can weaponize, but he can make the most of Mm. this kind of platform. He can use Octavia in her life and her death to his advantage.
1: Yeah, and probably love throughout the empire too, given that she'd spent time in the East with Antony. Mm. So she dies of natural causes. I feel like this is the only podcast where we've said natural causes so many times for death in, like her birth, we don't know exactly when, 11 or 10 BC. Well, we'll get to how we calculate that in a moment. Hmm. She is also buried in the mausoleum of Augustus, right next to her son, Marcellus. And in fact, the epitaph is on the same block of marble. And it just says, Octavia, sister of Augustus, as indeed his says, son-in-law of Augustus. So it's all in relation to him, what's written on their tombs. There are huge funerary honors, though. She is given a big send-off. Traditionally, this had not happened for Roman women, much more muted for women than for men. And you're not going to see it again until Livia dies, which is about four decades later. Diocassius, Book 54, Chapter 35, says, When his sister died, he, Octavian, caused her body to lie in state in the shrine of Julius. So initially in the temple the divine Julius Caesar. And on this occasion also, he had a curtain over the corpse. He himself delivered the funeral oration there. This is a big deal, talking to the public. And Drusus delivered one from the rostra. That's Drusus, who is son of Livia, Augustus's wife. For the mourning was publicly observed and the senators had changed their dress. Her body was carried in the procession by her son's-in-law, of whom Drusus was one by then. But not all the honours voted for her were accepted by Augustus. Even though the funeral itself was an enormous operation, there's often this idea that you don't give, especially to women, all of the honours that the Senate's prepared to. Just to show a little bit of...
0: Modesty. yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's what's going on there. So the reason we don't know exactly the year is that we get the date from Suetonius, who in his life of Augustus says that, again, from the position of Augustus, he lost his mother during his first consulship and his sister Octavia in his 54th year. It just depends how you calculate when his 54th year was. He was born in 63. Roman inclusive counting makes it difficult. It's 11 or 10.
0: Mm. As we said earlier, she survived by a number of children, Mm -hmm. possibly most importantly, She's linked to the rest of the Julia Claudians quite strongly, yeah. isn't she?
1: She is. So in a way, it's not surprising because they all marry each other. So,
0: so practically s- somewhere in there you're going to get a link?
1: Yeah. So the Claudian part of that family comes from Livia the children of her first husband, Mm. um, Tiberius and Drusus. I've already mentioned Drusus gave a funeral eulogy for Octavia, and that's because he is her son-in-law. He's married to Antonia the Younger. Drusus is the brother of the next emperor, Tiberius. Okay, so they were married in 16 BCE. Octavia's still alive at that point. And through this younger daughter and the marriage to Drusus, she is then the ancestor of three emperors. She's the grandmother of Claudius. Claudius is the son of Antonia and Drusus. She's the great-grandmother of Caligula. Claudius's brother, Germanicus, is the father of Caligula. And she's the great-great-grandmother of Nero. So the last two maybe not so much to cheer about, through Agrippina the younger. Three of her descendants become emperors.
0: So to surmise, what are we to think of Octavia then to the Romans... She must have been, as I said in my opening, I guess, uh, the perfect aristocratic woman. She's useful in alliances. She's dutiful to her husband and her family, virtuous in her behavior, a beauty to behold. Uh, Thank you, Plutarch, for that. And a dedicated mother.
1: I don't think there's much question about her being a dedicated mother. All of our evidence points that way. Mm. Even though there's a lot of spin, a lot of PR attached to her through Augustus to cast her in this idealized way, I think that there's probably is a, a base of truth about it. There's probably a base of truth about it amongst other women who don't get that Augustan makeover, though. I would also say that, you know, she's not one of the women that we often concentrate on or no dramas I know where she's very prominent, except maybe HBO Rome. Well, I would say that she's given a much more risque life in HBO Rome than we get from any of our sources. And I think that's why, because she is depicted in this idealized way that dramas don't really have anywhere to go with her. Whereas you want to make a drama of Cleopatra, well, there's lots of controversy, there's lots of action, there's, you know, lots of luxury, great scenes that you can show. Mm. There's not as much conflict here. But then, of course, there was a lot of conflict because she's right at the middle, all through the 30s BCE, of the growing conflict between Octavian and Mark Antony. So I think you probably could construct a really interesting drama around her the way that her loyalties are torn during Mm. that decade
0: but as far as the Romans go as far as Octavian Augustus goes perfect sister Mm. perfect tool to be used has all the great qualities that you want no controversies attached Mm. never has to think about banishing her or exiling her or anything like that which
1: is rare for the women in his family
0: put that on a coin put that on a portico
1: Yeah, she works out very well for Augustus in his moral crusade as he says that he's going to remake Rome as this virtuous space. Mm. I mean, Livia does as well, and yet her later reputation was mangled by our sources, I would say mangled. You know, she comes out as a much more sinister character, but there doesn't seem to be any space for that with Octavia. There's nowhere to insert doubt.
0: That was Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic and thanks for listening.